Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Loosehead Podcast with me, Jeff Neville. Today I'm absolutely delighted to have Ben Ryan on the phone. Ben, how are you getting on? Doing really well, thanks. Sun is shining in, uh, in West London. I imagine the last couple of months has given you time to sit back, reflect, work on some projects and make some time for yourself. That's, that's it, actually. It's been quite nice to, to have this time to, to not be on the road. And, and like you say, that the projects that you've always been wanting to do but just haven't managed to find the time. Uh, I, I've managed to I've managed to get my head around some of those, so that's so it's been good. Well, I wanted to talk to you today about the Fiji experience you had, but mostly about coaching at the highest level and that peak performance and everything like that. So I suppose mm. if you're ready, we'll just jump right in. Yeah, de- definitely. So first off, you applied, interviewed for, and accepted the Fiji job all in a very short time frame. What was it that encouraged you to step out of your comfort zone like that? Uh, it's a good question. Yeah, no, it was a bizarre. It was a b- bizarre set of events that got me across to Fiji. Um, but I guess if I reverse a little bit, the the last year that I had been coaching England sevens um, was was not an enjoyable one. You know, I'd I'd kind of fallen out of love with professional rugby, and a lot of the a lot of the extra stuff and the extra layers of management, decision making, and bureaucracy that came came with the elite sport, and I was forgetting about why I was involved in it in the first place, which was trying to get a bit like I was when I was a teacher, trying to get the best out of everybody and create an environment where people can thrive. And I had I'd had big arguments with my bosses at Twickenham. We we had very different outlooks on what we wanted the game to look like and how we wanted to plan. And um, and it was the World Cup final in Russia um, where we just got to the final for the first time in a couple of decades. And I didn't really want to be there. Didn't really enjoy the final whistle going from the semi-final to get into the final. Um, remember finishing, losing to New Zealand, just wanted to go home and uh, and and think of something else to do. And then and then Fiji turned up via uh, somebody sending me a tweet saying Fiji are looking for a new coach. And and that got the ball ball rolling. How alien was it living in Fiji to begin with? But how important was living there when it came to getting to know your players as people, their daily habits and lifestyle? Yeah, that it was. It was. You know, firstly, I, I wasn't living like a you know a a um, a spoilt lifestyle in London. But you know, you had a bit of money from from your work, and you lived in a nice part of town, and you had a a job that was ex, you know that from the outside anyway was exciting and. Um, and then I went to Fiji and, and I didn't bring any staff with me. So it was just, just me um, and Fijian staff. And I didn't want to live in the capital. Um, I'd been in contact with a couple of people when I knew I was, I was going to get the job. And, and one of them ran a, a backpackers in, in Pacific Harbour and was really keen on the rugby. Um, so I, I went to Pacific Harbour and, and I based myself there. And it, I, yeah, I, was, I, I, I really felt very um uh nervous in those first few weeks you really didn't know which which way to turn and 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 what to do but um i needed to do that i needed to i needed to have a a reset button and i i knew i was a much better coach than perhaps i'd been in that last year with england and uh and fiji kind of gave me the opportunity to to have a, a a brand new fresh start really you said you went over without any other coaches. And there's a quote in the book that I really liked. You were trying to get guys running at top speed to measure them. And without spoiling what happens in the book, because I'm sure you want people to read it, you, the key ingredient was simply a ball. 
and the quote was that you said you were a man up a creek trying to use a laptop as a paddle. <laughs> yeah, that's you it. Think? Oh, yeah, sorry. No, Jeff, you, no, you, no, carry uh-huh. on. You, you, you're right. Um, it, it's that, it's that, like, I talk about it a lot when, I, when I'm, I'm doing various things in business and work that when, when you start off on your, on your career, and I don't just mean coaching, you know, it might be when you're, you're a teacher or you're a startup company or whatever it is, you, you kind of you start fairly close to the bottom um, and you don't have too much too much that you're in control in charge of but you are in control of everything that, that you're doing and and I use the analogy that you know I started off my coaching and my teaching with like, like I was on a bicycle it's not it's not a, a flash bicycle it doesn't have many gears it's probably a bit rusty but I can I can I can be on it and I can decide where it goes and avoid hitting things in the road and as as you move through professional sport you you become more uh, that bicycle turns into something bigger until i get to twickenham and the rfu and it was this big juggernaut that went really fast and i was at the back of that juggernaut and had no control over anything and and with that sometimes you get all this noise around professional sport you know and i, I had a name for um for bringing in innovation in england and it wasn't really particularly because I was geeky about that sort of stuff. It was just because I was setting up a sevens program that needed to know more. I needed to know what was required of these physically, these athletes. And and Clive Woodward had had um, some GPS that he'd used with a test team. And after uh, you know, a couple of sessions, they decided they didn't want to use them. So I, I took them and put them on the sevens boys. And we were the first rugby team to to use them in international matches and and all that tech and everything else. And at Twickenham, it was, you know, medical staff um, higher up that weren't even coming to training, telling me how many minutes I could do contact every week and administrators telling me, you know, how to how to run the team that would never come to actually watch the team train or play. And uh, and you get in that mindset sometimes that you lose the basics and the foundations. And so, yeah, so when I went to Fiji with an all Fijian staff and I'm just doing something simple like a 40-meter sprint test that would back in England would be done on, you know, the best surfaces with the best technology wrapped around it to give them feedback to how they could improve their speeds and, uh, and get better. I, I didn't have any of that in Fiji, but the boys just thought, you know, what, what's he doing getting, getting us to run from a, from a coconut tree to a plastic bag that would put 40 meters away. Um, because you know, it's not fun, not getting fitter, you're not scoring tries. And when my physio told me to put a, um, give someone in front, front of them uh someone to chase they suddenly got faster because there was a reason to do it and i think i guess the long final eh, the end of this story i suppose is that whenever i did anything with them and anything i do now with any organization if, even if it's a you know a multi-million pound organization playing premier league football you have to say what you're doing and explain why you're doing it so that players connect to that and then they understand it and they own it and with fiji i had to do exactly the same and that that example you gave me was a was a really good one of I didn't explain it I just thought they'd understand it and so it kind of just got me back to basics with Fiji which which I've hopefully is something that I've you know I've not forgotten now. So do you think in the modern game that there's too much of a focus on the need for the latest technology and numbers and statistics? I do and you know I came through as an amateur and then a professional as a player, um, I was I was that first group of players when the game went pro, where we suddenly had more time on our hands and nobody really knew what to do. And so we'd we'd go to the gym and drink more cups of tea and 
these playbooks would, would, would slowly get thicker for no other reason than the coaches had a bit more time on their hands. And, you know, I, you know, I, I stand by the, the sentence that I often say that thicker playbooks equals thicker players. And, and, and you often can just get too much noise in a program and actually not understand the signal and, and what's really important. And when I'm going to work, some of the work I'm doing in consultancies in different sports that have much more money than a lot of the professional rugby teams have, they've now come full circle and they realize that all the, all that added stuff, how much of a difference is it really making? And, you know, ultimately you're playing football, you're wearing a black shirt, you're trying to kick it to other people in the black shirt. When you haven't got the ball, you're trying to get it, get it off people in the white shirt opposite you. And we lose, we lose focus sometimes that the games that we play are far more simpler. Um, And, you know, asking yourself a question with all the technology, all the noise, all the people that you involve, you know, is it going to make us better? And and with Fiji, we know money and no res- and, and and very little resource except the human resource, which was the wonderful players. Um, you had to ask those hard questions, and and I've just again, it's something that that I did have as a young coach. I kind of forgot about it when I was at Twickenham a bit, and and it and it resurrected itself and remained when I when I went to Fiji. I do think the simpler the game and the more clear the picture of what a coach is trying to achieve the more fun players tend to have as well. Jeff, what I think is um, for any, uh, how I set up a team now and um, is have clear black and white boundaries, guardrails on what's required. So if that's on the playing field, you know, you have, you have your clear guardrails on, on your non-negotiables on what everybody's agreed. Uh, And then within those guardrails, you allow players to make their own decisions to, to, to communicate, on what they're seeing as the game's unfolding and to be more flexible in their, in the way that they play, you know, now for me, that that's going to get a good team to be a great team. You you can have a highly organized six phase plus team um, defense, very, very rigid. And again, and you drill them to bits. For me, I love playing against those teams because ultimately it's harder for them to find their plan B's because even if they've got players in those teams that are very good and creative, if they've been, if they've been shoved into playing a very um, uh, a drilled game, then it's a lot harder for them to relearn those skills on making decisions on the hoof. And, and, you know, you can, you can find a, a plan to, to outplay and outthink those teams by not doing too much sometimes to take them away from uh, their plan. So, yeah, I, I'm a big proponent of of allowing players to feel autonomy, um, which drives their belief and their purpose. And I, and I think it just gets you into that higher level of, of success than you would get if you were trying to be overly scripted. Looking at some of the players, and you selected some probably against the advice of some higher up. Standout traits have you consistently seen in young players who have made it to the top? <laughs> Great question. I think two, two parts. Yeah, I, I did pick players that I was told not to. Um, and I'm, I'm very much a case of when someone comes in, it's not like sometimes when you're, you're, you're going through as a, as a player, someone's coming into the academy or junior and or you're starting up into the, in the first team and you're, and you're right there, you know, you're at the front of the bus and you're, um, and you're treated as, as the lowest person in the team. You know, everybody that comes in, I give them an A, a star to start with and it's up to them to hang on to that. And, and so I, I didn't care if I was told a player was a troublemaker or was this or was that, you know, it's what you see and it's, you know, and, and, 
um, often it's you know it's the difference between those six inches between what what people hear and the, the couple of inches on looking ahead and what you see um, can make a big difference on those first moments on 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 judging players and allowing them to show you what who they are and I would say that if I had to have some traits where the great players that I've coached um, they they have a freedom to do what they want to do so that so they feel safe in their skills and their communication that whatever the coach has decided to put in front of them as a blueprint to play the game, they will still be confident enough to do their thing and make their decisions and back themselves. And I think in nearly every exception, um, I've had a couple of, of, of players like a Jerry Tuwai in sevens that that's taken time to get to this, but being incredibly hard workers um, and, and wanting to hone their skill and master it uh, it's been a common thread I've seen with the very best players that I've worked with. Even when things got difficult, was it tough to keep the faith in the process? Yeah, it, it wasn't. It wasn't. Uh, yeah, look, I, I, I had a military dictator and a, and a convicted murderer as my two line managers that made things difficult and that you're in charge of a programme that it's the nat- country's national sport. Um, so there was a lot of pressure on there from an external, but um, and occasionally, you know, you lose one game or two games in a row, you know, they, they, they'd often be calling for the coach's head. But if you stick into your process and I had clearly got alignment from staff and players and and also then made sure that that message went to the media and to, to the supporters that this is the journey and this is a process we're on, that my side of the bargain, I, would, I was always going to keep up and... And I guess one one of the things that always helped me was whenever I walked onto the field, however bad I felt, however much pressure I felt under, when I went on the field to coach the team, there was so much joy in the training sessions that we had that it lifted your spirits and those around you. So you never held on to anything for very long, working and coaching with the Fijian team. Across any level, any coach and any player will say, when you lose, people think you're useless. But when you win, they're very quick to tell you what you still could have done better. How important is it for coaches and players of any level to block out that noise? It's one of the it's one of the things that I don't think you you can you can read in a book or do on a on a on a coaching course. It's it comes from experience, and um, you know I am I, um, I learned from experience how to deal with and manage my my ego, and that's effectively what we're talking about here. You know, if you're winning, then you think you're you know, you're the main man and, and everything's down to you and you think you're way better than you actually are and you've had more of an influence on the game than, than was ever really possible. Um, and if you don't do well, then you're looking for other people to blame. Um, you, you drive people outside what's, what, what's been agreed um, and you don't have a consistent behaviour. And, and I think parking your ego as a coach um, is a really hard skill but it allows you to be far more um, free thinking and make decisions based on actually what's best for everybody, for the environment, for the team, not something that your ego is telling you that you need to say or do or feel because, because it's getting to the front, uh, front and center of things. So, um, you know, I've, I've had lots of work that I've done myself to make sure that that ego gets parked and you know occasionally it will rise up and you've just got to remind yourself that it doesn't do you any good and to to get back to your processes 
there was a line in the book as well that you repeated constantly and it was the standards we walk past are the standards we become. Yeah. And you mentioned that that almost became the culture of the team. How important is it for a team to have an identity and a culture that everyone buys into? I'm getting into a lot of trouble at the moment with the standard you walk past because be, we'll be going for walks on the river where we are here and and uh, I'll be seeing people that are not observing social distancing or are going one way one way systems the wrong way and I'll be asking them to to and picking them up on that and uh, uh, I feel like I'm I feel like I'm the, the the local policeman that's telling them all of these things but what I guess I, I use that sentence a lot for is because I've come across lots of cultures and environments where they will have all those their values or their beliefs or um, or their vision stuck on the wall about this is who we are, and you know, and when they're playing a big home game, they might you might see some of their players having a, a broom and and cleaning out their change rooms after the game, but you won't see them on the road when they're doing that in the away game, or if they've just lost and they don't live their values, um, they don't they don't have a, a value system that actually can can be consistently applied and seen, and and that's where I use the phrase, you know, the the, the standard you walk past is the standard that you become. Because um, if somebody you see someone doing something that's outside what we've all agreed is is the way we should behave, and you don't pick it up, you don't say anything about it, then that becomes your standard, and that becomes the team's standard. And we always would use a really simple going back to that forty meter sprint, connecting values, everything you have to connect to behaviors. You know, we'd always say that if we didn't win Olympic gold medal with Fiji, it's not because Oscar Kalinasau, the captain, would miss a tackle in the final or Jerry Tuai would miss a conversion. It would be because of someone's behaviours six months earlier. And if people understand that everything connects, then you're going to get much better, consistent behaviours and you're going to get a self-policing group that means that the head coach isn't the one having to pick up on people on a daily basis. It's being regulated and run by those players and the people that are working in that group and they're feeling then that autonomy that I talked about um, and that they're actually making a difference themselves. They're not part of a bigger machine where um, they don't have any say in how they can direct the success of that group. The last question I want to ask about your time with Fiji, could you pick out one standout moment when you began to see or realise your plan was coming to fruition? Um, Two, uh, an on-field and an off-field one. An on-field one was when um, you know, I, you, I was working a lot on some of their foundation stones, and one of them was, you know, we did we didn't want any any breakdowns in the way that that Fiji played. But if we ever went into breakdowns or defensively in the counter rucking, we wanted those to be absolutely golden. And so we worked hard on the tactics and the technique really around the first man and second man into those breakdowns in attack and defence. And I I did a session. Um, one on a Monday and then I it was in the evening I came home and I got got out early to the training ground in the morning and they were already out there and they were coaching themselves the tactics and the skills that I had given them the day before and that was for me a, a very big moment because for the first few months um, first year really they, they just wanted to wait to see what I did you know that the white guy in charge whatever he said went they would just repeat that do that and nothing more and actually they realize there that they've been given these tools that they then can use and adapt and 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 and, and do that use themselves and, and so for me that was that really felt that we were on we were on the right track and then um after tournaments i'd let the boys i didn't want them drinking 
I wanted everyone to stay together and we were being pretty tight on their nutrition. So I let them go to have anything that, that they wanted. And, uh, they'd, they'd always go for KFC. Um, KFC is banned in Fiji. Um, the, the story goes that the prime minister who is the military dictator, uh, Frankie, he went into the KFC in Suva and said, I'd like to know what your secret herbs and spices are. And KFC said, we're not going to tell you. So they shut down every KFC overnight and, uh, they're still not there. So when the Fijians overseas, KFCs you go to and we'd go to a KFC after a tournament I'd I'd buy them all with bargain buckets and um we'd sit down and eat and have a little chat and often you'd get the you know the Kiwis and Samoans and Australians and South Africans would be sneaking out behind their coaches backs and doing the same um and we got to about a year to go before the Olympics and I did the same at in New Zealand and um said go go to a KFC and and half the boys said do you mind if we just eat in the hotel and have the salad there? You know, it's a bit greasy, the KFC. And, and I thought, well, we, we're onto something here. If I can get the, those Fijian boys off KFC after a hard tournament, then they're really starting to, to understand the connection between eating well and being consistent in their, their performances. I know I said that was the last question about Fiji, but um, I'm afraid <laughs> I lied a little bit then there. I, I really want to ask, you coached Fiji to an Olympic gold medal. How good a feeling was it to finally do that? And the second question I want to ask is, was it difficult to adapt to life after achieving such a big goal? The feeling I got, um, I've I've got to say that um, without sounding like um, my ego is getting involved, it's a genuine feeling I had um, very early on that we were going to win the gold medal. And um, we had talented players, but, you know, they had won one World Series in 2005 when they had arguably the two best sevens players ever to play the game, William Ryder and uh, Waisali Sarevi playing, and they hadn't won anything since then um, on, on the world stage as far as a series. But I knew we had the quality, and, and then, then I knew we got them to the fittest levels they'd ever got to the Olympics. I knew that they also, the way we wanted to play was total alignment. And so I felt very confident on the sideline that the boys were very highly competent. And luckily, you know, by half time it was 29-something, so I had that 10 minutes of that second half to enjoy it, it really. And I felt a huge wave of relief that um, we had achieved what we set out to do. And, and I knew that it would change everybody's lives. So that was kind of my overriding feelings. Um, I didn't have any beers that night because I was knackered and went to bed and uh, slept amazingly well. Uh, and afterwards, um, yeah, for the next three or four months, I, I went to work in New York in basketball for a while. and. I, 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 I did have it. I drop. I did um, uh, found it. Find it hard to find uh, a what next. Um, uh, I always. I got told by mates that had 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 achieved other things like that. That um, that you'll you'll be a, you'll be a bit of a be a bit of a dick once the Olympics are over, and you'll think you're better than you are. You get carried away. You'll 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 party too, more than you should do. Drink more than you should do. And I did. And I was in New York and. You know, I was, I was working with some, some, some pretty cool organisations, and and I, yeah, I, I was, I, I dropped back into that kind of not a great version of me, um, and then after a few months, <laughs> I came back out of it, and I, and I, and and I kind of recalibrated, and I think it's difficult when anybody, you know, that I've, you hear the, that phrase. I think Bernard Jackman talked about it. You know, athletes die twice, and coaches sometimes as well. You know, after they have a, something that they've they've uh, worked to achieve after that things seem very mundane and 
Um, and so it's, it's difficult, you know, to manage those highs and lows. How important is it to continue to change and adapt your game, especially when you're on top? I think what's important from, for me, and it's not as easy to do either for coaches coming through, is not just settle for best practice being what you're seeing happening at the top. Be curious on there's different ways to play the game, to coach the game, to push technique, to push tactics. And I, and I think, you know, if you base all of that on really good, clear, black and white guardrails within your program, you plan really well and your foundation stones around your core skills, which include decision making and your training principles and then everything off field as far as your values and behaviors. Um you should feel as a coach then comfortable to really try to push things and try things. And if those are communicated well to the players, then um, I think that's how you're going to get some innovation that's actually going to help you and get you better. And, you know, I was lucky. I ha I've had, I've had some really good mentors like Brian Ashton when I was younger. Um, and I always didn't feel scared to try things. So when I was coaching 15s, uh, you know, I, I'd pick a libero often. Um, and we were only playing at championship, so level below the premiership, but still a good standard playing teams like Northampton and Harlequins that had got relegated in those years. And um, I'd pick 14 players, then one player that I just said, go wherever you fancy. Um, and, and no one's done it since, but actually it worked pretty well for us. And it just allowed them, it, it kind of reinforced the fact that I would allow players to to have that autonomy within what we're trying to achieve and and I think there's lots of different things that you can do to push things and sometimes we get caught up in just wanting to do what we see at the very top and that's not always best practice. So would you say that open-mindedness is probably one of the most important things to have? De definitely coaching? you know you, you're learning all the time um, it doesn't matter who you who, who it is um, there's stuff there's nuggets of gold to be learned everywhere really uh, I think I think you know how I see it is you don't want to be that coach that's a bit of a magpie you know sees something glittery and goes to that and then the next week goes to something else. Have your core principles that you're not going to move from you know things that you think are absolutely vital, but around that there's stuff that you know that you should you should be continually to improving all the time and looking for other ways to do things and that's where your curiosity, your open mindedness can really help you and drive those coaches to be better or fulfill their promise rather than get stuck in a, a fixed mindset where there is only one way or two ways to do something. Are there elements of other teams or individual athletes that you have tried to implement or would look to use as inspiration for the team? Yeah, there, there are actually, I mean, on and off field. Um, and I think we all, we all um, can be accused of a bit of plagiarism. Um, with a lots of things we see and you might see something from another sport or even another sector and see how that could work for you and you, you, you so you know I use some of my some of my movement and passing practices I've taken from a Barcelona um, academy uh, practices that they do and, and it's with a football and you can pass it back and forwards but I've modified it to to do it um, with a rugby ball and within the laws of the game to encourage movement communication and and decision making and so that i guess that there's some crossover from that formations that football will use whether there's um uh, inverting the pyramid is a brilliant book if uh, for any coach um it's the history of football formations and you don't have to like football it just gives you good insight into why things have changed and the reasons that coaches 
have tried to change stuff to to gain an advantage and you know i i, I use backline formations um that uh, wouldn't have a typical back formation i'd i'd have a lot of stuff to to put some real pressure and questions on the defense to move their shapes um and and that stuff all i i guess i've got a bit from me and a bit from other sports and then obviously on and off the field stuff um you steal i, I think i remember stealing some some uh, uh questionnaire stuff um wellness stuff from america's cup and to keep that whenever you're looking for certain things and you go delving into trying to find out i remember looking at how to beat jet lag and circadian rhythm stuff for our travel and i, and I talked to people that worked in orchestras because you know these orchestras go from london to sydney and then they have they land and they suddenly got a play in front of a, a packed audience and they're absolutely on point and I thought, well, I'd like to know how they managed to do that and have their have their fine motor skills absolutely honed to perfection and their decision making, having had all that travel. So you do if you're if you're open minded, then you get it leads you into some really interesting conversations. Are there any non negotiables, regardless of the culture or team you yeah, walk into? There are, and I think what people have to be careful of is um, it's not um, it's not a, a, a polar opposite. If you saying if you're saying you're a coach that really wants players to make decisions and to be more autonomous and to drive things, it doesn't suddenly mean that you're just some sort of hippie coach that's decided that you're just going to let let the lads run free. What you need is to have very clear. So my non-negotiables are very clear guardrails, agreed guardrails with coaches with the other players and coaches on what our standards are for everything um, and what we're trying to, to do. And within those guardrails, so if you imagine a, a box, within the, the, the outside of those bo that box is guardrails. Inside of that, you're allowing people to be their best version. You know, they're doing things that they want to do to be their best, whether that's how different methods of training or recovery or communication to get their belief and purpose, feel safe in having good conversations with people and not getting... Um, not feeling that the coaches are gonna are gonna put a big black mark against their name, feeling that they've got some status, their achievements are getting recognised, all that sort of stuff. But those non-negotiables, occasionally, players are going to make mistakes and and break those non-negotiables, those guidelines, those guardrails. And when the guardrails are broken, you've got to be as a coach, can't protect someone from the consequences of their actions. So you can put an arm around someone. And you can help them manage that, but you're not going to say, oh, well, look, he's our star player. I know he went out drinking when he shouldn't have done, but really need him on Saturday. So let's just have a quick word with him. Tell him he's been a naughty boy. Don't do it again and get him on the field. If you do that, that's your standard for everybody. You've got grey in the system. If you've got grey, then you've got fog. If you've got fog, then you don't know where you're going. And as a young coach, I definitely was guilty of that. I wanted the players to like me, wanted the players to love me. So you you give them a bit too much rope you kind of give them too many second chances that are outside what everybody's agreed and when you do that your your, your system is not gonna it's not gonna work um so i've learned hard way that that they become your non-negotiables and you have to play the long game um and i see it a lot in football you know where a new coach comes in you know it's often cut been the old coach has often been sacked because the culture's started to tip the wrong way um, the new coach comes in, the star players aren't behaving themselves, but he turns a blind, blind eye because he needs his first game to get three points. Um, and 
you know, a month down the line, those star players that aren't doing what they're doing are the ones that are getting that guy sacked again or in trouble because he hasn't set his standards early enough. So they'd be, you know, they're absolutely are my non-negotiables. Just talking about football there, do you think player power is a problem in rugby or will become a problem in rugby? In football, it's difficult. You know, I think, you know, I had this preconceived um, thoughts around football, you know, that I thought rugby did everything better. We had better standards. We had better, better brains trust in the management, the coaches, our sports science knew how to do things better and football really they had all the money but they 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 they, they weren't they weren't as uh, adept at uh, performing and high performance as, as rugby and i was totally wrong you know i'm not saying rugby are doing it wrong but uh, football do it brilliantly well in many places that i've gone to um and it's very hard for them where in rugby generally you go into a team there's there's only a, you know, national teams are easy gen- most of the time you've only got one culture and one language and in, in professional teams in, in rugby, even in some of the more um, multicultural premiership teams in England, you've probably still only got a couple of different languages, three maybe at most. Football's totally different. Even my local club, Brentford, in championship, um, I think they've got over 20 different nationalities in the, in the, in the match day squad and, and in the A, a team and B team. Uh, and so coaches have got to be very clever and skillful at managing the players so that A, Plus, these players are on half a million pounds a week. Now, for rugby, we don't have any of those problems. There's some top players that are paid a lot of money now. But generally, I think we have a system in place where they're not, they haven't got that money. It's not as complicated, the landscape, as far as so many different cultures um, to understand. There's no excuse, really, for players breaking those guardrails and coaches breaking those guardrails. So... I don't think we'll ever get to that to the point, but I think football isn't is a very difficult. I mean, somebody gets that right in football, and you show a, a Jurgen Klopp or a Pep Guardiola, they they are absolutely, you know, the geniuses at their man management. I've seen Guardiola talking four different languages to his back four and his goalkeeper fluently. No, no, we haven't got many rugby coaches that that would be able to do that. The last question I'll ask you, and it's one I like to ask all coaches uh, when they're on the podcast, is regardless of level, what advice would you give to a coach? Well, the advice I, I, I'd give is um, get your hours in. So get as many experiences, as many opportunities as a coach coming through the systems to coach. So I remember when I was moving through as a PE teacher, um, and coaching my school team. I was coaching the county under-18s. I was coaching Oxfordshire under t- uh, Oxford Junior under-21s, um, Southwest schools. I was coaching Newbury. I was co- uh, coaching a couple of other invitation teams, and, and I submerged myself really in it because there's nothing... I talked about it earlier, but you can... I, d- I don't really read rugby books as far as coaching manuals and everything like that, but your coaching courses to a large extent, tick boxes and get you to a certain standard. But it's experience that gives you the knowledge to to be better. And so just get do as much as you possibly can. And don't think that you can't get some absolute great pieces of information from a, from a PE rugby coach that's been coaching for 20 years at local school. Um, he, he or she could have just as much cracking information as, as the academy coach. And often those young coaches try to network with the people that are the professional clubs rather than actually do the hard yards to get better at their their skill, their trade. 
so that they've got those experiences that will get them the better jobs and will move them through and they will be more successful. Well, Ben, I'd like to thank you for taking the time to come on the podcast and for talking about everything so well and so openly. No, I really um, it enjoyed it. Thanks for some, some, some cracking questions. Thank you very much. And I'll let you get back to your day. Folks, that's it from me. Thanks a million for listening. 